Welcome to No Cure for Curiosity, a podcast for curious people. I am Shawnee Luft, Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Associate Dean of General Education and Honors at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. No Cure for Curiosity launched one year ago this month, and it's been my attempt to promote and model broader curiosity in the liberal arts. This upcoming season, I'm going to explore my curiosity along with my brilliant colleagues in things like The Matrix and The Supreme Court, Dungeons and Dragons, slang, and much more. But with the Olympics upon us and the Super Bowl on the way, I was getting curious about sports. So I invited a professor of English and a professor of religion in America who both write and teach about sports to join me. Art Remillard is professor of religious studies at St. Francis University in Pennsylvania, where he teaches courses on Christian history, ethics, interfaith literacy, and post-apocalyptic literature. Art is currently finishing a book manuscript tentatively entitled Bodies in Motion, A Religious History of Sports in America, and he's already planning his next book, a semi-autobiographical exploration of his lifelong relationship with distance running. And my second guest is Robert Sarabian, professor of English at UWSP who teaches writing and literature courses. Robert's main teaching and research area is 19th century British literature. He teaches a sports and literature course as well as a composition course focused on the theme of sports. I started the conversation by asking Robert Sarabian about one of the biggest sports stories of the last few months. The first thing that came to mind is athletes and the coronavirus vaccine. Athletes that won't get it or will get it or are fighting about it. In the last couple of days, the tennis player Novak Djokovic, one of the greatest tennis players perhaps of all time, refused to get the vaccine and, and had to, I think, forfeit a tournament. He was kicked out of Australia because of his vaccination status. Uh, Kyrie Irving in the Brooklyn Nets. Aaron Rodgers, of course, tried to skirt around the issue of whether he was vaccinated, but it, it came out that, in fact, he was not vaccinated. I was curious about what you make of these uh, vaccine or anti-vaccine stories in sports. Does it connect to either sports and, and narrative or sports and religion in ways that I do find interesting? I think in part in sports with the tension between uh, freedom and structure, the way that sports uh, you know, require that everybody follow rules. But one of the paradox of sports of games is that the rules have to, by necessity, limit freedom in order for competition to work. And so I think that's part of that is this, I think certain, you know, certain individuals, certain athletes trying to push even more generally just against the idea of rules uh, that limit what they do. The same way that players try and bend rules for a competitive advantage during a game. Uh, you know, what can they get away with? How far can they push and not get called? I think that's a, a certainly a part of it. And uh, at the same time, there's the notion, I think, of going along with the rules, going along with the vaccine requirements as part of a team, as being part of a community that, you know, team sports, particularly like football, you know, are not about one individual. They're a team effort, collaborative effort. Art, is there anything you want to add or any thoughts you have about? When we're talking about narratives, we're talking about how are we structuring our sense of good and evil? How are we sense structuring our sense of what success is and what failure is, right? But then once we introduce the discussion of COVID and vaccines, then we get a whole different layer of team allegiance. Am I team vaccinated or am I team unvaccinated? The statement, I am vaccinated or I'm not vaccinated, aligns you with a community who has an entire narrative around their identity 
that then can connect all sorts of political topics and themes um, and put you from a football field and a football game out into this broader national debate uh, that's that's funneled and fueled by these competing truth claims. I'm, I'm saying truth in quotes here. I mean, I think sports in some sense is obviously reflecting where our political division is right now. But then is that actually greater than it has in the past? Have any of you thought about to what degree do sports reflect political divisions in the past? And to what degree is this something new? Because now everything is divided by politics. What channel you watch, what movies you like, what you know, T-shirts you wear. You know, in the 19th century, prior to the Civil War, some of the biggest sporting events were horse races between horses from the north and horses from the south, right? Regional rivalry was made on the turf. And then it continued after the war, but there was also international, you know, contests that were similar. So, um, you know, one of the great boxers of American history is is Tom Melnow. And, you know, the kind of legend is, is that he was uh, born an enslaved person fought his way out of enslavement, uh, quite literally, you know, won a match and uh, then went over to England to find fame. And he fought Tom Cribb and, and it was us versus England, right. Mm -hmm. In these, in these boxing matches, not that long after the revolution. And so, you know, our sporting places have always been these kinds of proxies for local national and international rivalries. Just to jump into, of course, This is a unique moment, right? Because the Super Bowl is being played during the Olympics. (laughs) (laughs) And so, right, I mean, I mean, the fact that China is hosting the Olympics and all, you know, the the idea of uh, at least a diplomatic boycott by the U.S. But even, you know, historically, the, you know, the U.S., in the USSR and hockey, but all, you know, I, I mean, even during the Cold War, right, the 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 Olympic, there were always those political rivalries, even though the Olympics were, at least in theory, supposed to be apolitical, right? It's a chance where the world competes on equal footing, not on a battlefield, but on a playing field. Mm-hmm. That's, that's that's another interesting uh, dimension, too. So I've taught religion, pop culture, and sports always comes up to some degree. And the question that students always want to talk about is, are sports a religion? Art, I'm curious, um, in your teaching or in your experience with students, is that issue of sports as religion? Uh, has that come up? Oh, it's the first thing anybody ever asks me, right? <laughs> yeah. The fir- I mean, it's anytime I'm talking to anybody and they say, oh, what are you writing? About? I'm writing about religion and sports. The first thing they're going to say is something to the effect of like, I had this completely novel and unique idea the other day that football is the new religion of America. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, and you're right, like yeah. everybody kind of has this intuitive sense. And I think that there's a couple of things driving it. First, there is the social trend of, um, you know, a waning influence of institutional religions in American life, right? We, we've seen the numbers and, you know, the, the, the lacking allegiances to, to institutional religions. And then you turn on your TV on a Sunday and see 120,000 people watching a football game, you know? So, it's the juxtaposition, you know, one of my friends says that he wrote a book called The New Cathedrals uh, as a way of talking about the building of these these incredible um, sporting complexes that we have all across, across America, right? That these are our new cathedrals. But then there's also the fixation on the curious things that people do around sports that just don't make any sense except for that context. Mm-hmm. And that has a kind of religious feel to it, right? Um, so there is this kind of residue there that 
I think people just, as I said, like they intuitively see and they t- intuitively want to interpret um, the activities that they're seeing in these sporting events through a religious lens. I really like your point about rules, even rules around fighting, right? I don't know. You probably know the old joke. Uh, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out, right? So hockey is a is a sport in which fighting it's as close to part of the sport as like any sport other than like boxing, right? My son played ice hockey for one year. And um, uh, even at his age, he was like in elementary school. They did not have rules that said you absolutely can't fight. It was more like you shouldn't fight. And I thought, you know, in other sports, we just say you can't punch people. We don't say you should do your best to avoid it. That really stood out to me as only in hockey, are they uh, are they not drawing that clear of a line between what the game is and fighting? I don't know, Robert. You must have thought about this as, with your uh, interest in hockey. Uh, well, in hockey, that's again that when I was talking about uh, blend of aesthetics and violence. I mean, fighting is part of the game. It's an integral part of the game. Checking, hitting, because it's a way right. And when you're playing a team that is a better skating team than you, let's say. It's a way that you can nullify that advantage. You can use the body, you can check, you can hit, uh, fighting. You know, it used to be too, like people have argued, uh, when there was fighting in hockey, it was self-enforcing. So in other words, if I'm a player, I'm not gonna cheap shot someone because I know if I do, they're gonna, one of their guys is gonna come after me and I'm going to pay the price for it. And, you know, some people argue that with the adding more stringent rules against it, you've now, you know, because now it depends on a referee to call it, you get more, you know, slashing, high, you know, high sticking, cross checking, those kinds of things, trying to manipulate the rules, because now it depends on the fact, you know, if the ref doesn't see it or you don't mm-hmm. get called, uh, you know, you're not going to do it. But the rule, yeah, I, th- I think your point too is interesting because the rules of games are not necessarily logical in the normal way we think of it they're designed to promote and enhance competition and so some you get these you know seemingly odd rules because they're a way that you promote competition and keep the game moving keep the action moving and not having just quick easy right results. and the rules are sometimes not written down but understood yeah. there are sort of understood rules it was like my example of kids playing freeze tag the community has agreed upon these rules, even if they don't consciously articulate them. Uh, they can see when someone's gone too far and what amount of rule bending you're allowed to do. Yeah, and it, it'll sometimes even depend. You know, teams, players know, you know, because of especially uh, ba- uh, baseball or more basketball, hockey, when you have the same referees because of the number of games, you know, they'll start to learn, you know, what refs, you know, their sort of patterns for what types of, you know, how often and what types they're going to call penalties. And some are more stringent and they'll know the rest that are more stringent, know the ones that are, you know, more mm-hmm. lenient and they'll take advantage of that too. It strikes me that the, um, that the vaccine issue, it, it might be related to that, right? That some players might perceive vaccines as bending the rules by not getting a vaccine and other people (laughs) see it as breaking the rules, right? That's kind of where the tension is. Uh, How much of this rule are you required to do? It's an example of where there's not an agreed upon set of standards for what you are required to do, or some people think there are and other people have a different perspective. Unlike in sports where for the most part, I think there are the expectations of behavior are clearly understood whether they're written down or not. I think it's back to Art's point too, is that, you know, behavior that 
would never be, that's just simply not allowable in daily life. In sports, it's not, you don't look at the morality ethics, it's not viewed through the same yeah. land. And so you, again, a lot, some of that too, is it within the structure of competition. Mm-hmm. So it's looked at not as bad behavior, but it's looked at as the game with, we say the game within the game, it's part of the getting that competitive edge. And so it's understood. And even as a player, you don't necessarily take it personally because you're going to mm-hmm. do it too. <laughs> One of the things that I've noticed is um, in sports where the violence is in the forefront and even sports where it isn't, but I'm just thinking prize fighting, boxing uh, in particular. MMA, maybe. Well, yeah, yeah. Now MMA mm-hmm. would be another one is that there is a push and pull um, between the understanding of this being a metaphor for life. These are, these are physical and, and bloody and you've got to put yourself out there and, and there's something heroic to this. Or is this just destructive? Is this destructive to mind and body and spirit? And is this distracting you from what really matters in life? So that, you know, that, that idea that the violence is really just preying on our id sensibilities and drawing us in and turning us um, into our worst selves is the kind of flip side of that. And so there's this constant push and pull morally uh, that I've seen, as I said, like prize fighting is the one place that I've I've looked into. Um, distance running, believe it or not, is a place where you see it, especially in the early 20th century, <laughs> right? That 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 you know, a young man dies training for a marathon, and everybody's like, "Well, this is too much. This is damage to the body. This is violence to the body. That that's that's unnecessary." There was a great book a couple of years ago from Steve Allman called "Against Football," and 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 he went into that in detail. And it, it does bring up these moral questions. Even in hockey, you know, I think in the, you know, even in, you know, there were moments season in the 70s and 80s, even where, you know, the violence was, it was really just it become too extreme. I mean, it was, you know, at times gladiatorial combat almost, you know, in the guise of a game. And, you know, it was necessary to limit that, you know, at a certain point, you can't just re- rationalize it all the way by saying it's part of the game. It's, it's right. part of the game. So I think that, that's important. And even art, you know, your article on Steelers Nation uh, toward the end, when you talk about, you know, the ste- the rap of the Steelers being the dirtiest team, right? I mean, again, I mean, at what point you can't just you, you do look at that and say, well, no, that's not okay. There are limits, uh, you know, even within so on quote unquote bending the rules where it does affect the integrity of the game. You know, I often in class ask why, you know, what students like, why do we care about, let's say in baseball about doping? If it's just a game, who cares? All right. So these players are doing it not. And I think I've always tried arguing that, you know, we expect in all places, at least in sports, that sports get it right. Right. They're supposed to be better because they are in essence their own they create their mm-hmm. own structure their, their their own space and if you can't and you know if you can't get it right in sports if you can't at least have honesty and fairness and equality in sports then what's the hope for the rest? <laughs> there's no hope for the rest of society at all the other issue you're bringing up and I, I did not mean to keep pulling in the vaccine question but the issue that connects to what you're both saying now and that is the uh, question about role models. 
So we have this sense that athletes are supposed to be role models, but like a lot of actors, they don't want to be role models necessarily. That's not in fact why they chose this profession or what, why they do what they do, but we uh, project onto them uh, an expectation of behavior that is sometimes unrealistic, maybe often unrealistic uh, about how we expect people to behave. This is an interesting topic to me, right? What constitutes a hero? What constitutes a flawed hero? What constitutes a fallen hero? A lot of the myth-making that happens around hero-making is uh, driven by commerce, is driven by our markets. So if we're talking about Michael Jordan, yeah, he is he is a phenomenal talent, right? One of the best basketball players to ever step on the court. Nike helped to build his mythology. That is an absolute, right? Who right. else did they help to build? They helped to build Tiger Woods, somebody who we would probably put into the fallen hero category, somebody who kind of had that, you know, lapse, he fell out of favor, he came back, right? He had that that story arc. And then Nike created another hero, Lance Armstrong. He has been cast out. Mm -hmm. And I think Robert mentioned this before. One of the things that Nike helped to do was to reinforce the narrative that he is just a fierce competitor, that he at the end of the day is doing all kinds of good for cancer and cancer research. Specifically, you're talking about Lance Armstrong? Yeah, Yeah. 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 Lance Armstrong. Right. And now he has become the archetypal fallen hero. And if you ever read the book Wheelmen about that whole doping regime that they had developed, it becomes clear that what Lance Armstrong, you know, he's always like, hey, you know, it was an even playing field. We were all using the same. No, 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 no. They had the best doping program. <laughs> they won that doping. That's what that, that was my takeaway from that book. And that, that he was so belligerent and so bullheaded about maintaining that secret that he was ruining people's lives to keep it. Um, yeah. But that book alone, right, deconstructs any kind of um, heroic persona that you might have still had coming into reading it. <laughs> So I wanted to, in the time I have remaining, I'm really interested in talking to you both about specifically football. I lived through a period of time in the 1980s where football and the NFL and the Super Bowl became a bigger cultural phenomenon than they had been. Something had changed. I think baseball would love it if we continue to call it America's pastime, but it's clearly not. There's something that changed, I think, in the late 20th century in terms of the sport that most Americans are interested in, why that would be, what happened, how do we distinguish America's love of baseball, that kind of pastoral game to this really, you know, a game that's more famously associated with kind of like war metaphors. I just take it back to the idea of narrative. I think the reason the Super Bowl is so popular is it's not just the game itself. It's the fact that the Super Bowl is the last part of the narrative. It's where we're going to get the climax and then the denouement to the season. And even when you listen, you know, the way that you build up to the Super Bowl, it's going back to the preseason and we we reminisce and remember the whole, all of the season, what teams went through, the players went through, you know, and it's that culmination of of the story. How is it all going to end? You know, and I think that just captivates us. Again, it goes back to, again, how we love storytelling. There is something that seems to have happened in in the last 40 years where certain sports, and, and I think the Super Bowl and football is probably the peak example of this. They generate so much attention 
and cultural focus and dollars in a way that didn't used to happen. What's changed that the Super Bowl and certain sports are so much more prominent than they might have been in the past? Baseball is just not, I mean, baseball is a, is a radio game, ultimately. It's not really, it's not well suited for TV, uh, uh, but fantasy football is just hugely popular. And then also video, mm-hmm. you know, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, John, Madden. as you know, John Madden, who, who just died, the legendary coach of the Raiders, but, you know, it's so adaptable to, to video gaming um, as well in ways that baseball just is. Let me throw in gambling. Baseball is a thinking game. I don't know, Shawnee, maybe that's part of it is that baseball just, if you're going to go and actually watch a game, you have to have patience. You have to enjoy uh, the art of it, the pauses of it, the ability to Mm -hmm. reflect, uh, to appreciate the subtleties. I I, I think in ways maybe that we've lost a certain uh, amount of patience as a public. (laughs) Just to get kind of meta on a little bit is you remember it was 1984 it was the Apple commercial. Right. Right. And it was the play on 1984. And, you know, what Apple understood was you're not selling a product, you're selling an idea. Mm-hmm. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Um, and it's like, you're, we're the countercultural, we're the ones who go against the stream, right? And they created an effective story that has created such allegiance from people that they will line up every time that new iPhone comes out. I think that football has done the same thing. They've created an effective story that makes people give their allegiance to it. Again, like people around here, they take a terrible towel to their grave, right? You know, (laughs) they are in their coffins with their terrible towels. That says something about allegiance. That, Wait, back up. What are these towels? I don't know about these towels. Explain what that oh, is. Oh, the terrible towel. Sorry. So it's a. <laughs> so this goes back to the 1970s. In the 1970s, there was, uh, you know, this this one sports announcer as a kind of like a gimmick said, "Hey, bring bring a yellow towel to the game because okay. that's the color, right?" And so the yellow towel became this thing that if you ever turn on a Steelers game, people are always twirling their terrible towels, their yellow towels, and so around here, it's a marker of identity. Mm-hmm. So if I go into the bar right down the street from me and I went in with a terrible towel and I blew my nose into it, call 911 <laughs> because it's going to end bad. That's a sacred object. You don't mess with those things, you know? We talked earlier about the idea of sports as transcendence. Uh, either of you, are, are you interested in sharing from your own sports viewership or your own sports background? Do you have a transcendent experience that you had that comes to mind? Um you know, I think that there have been these kind of moments in my life as a as a distance runner where um, just you find the groove and it's motion without effort and everything's just clicking and the time just blurs past. And, you know, if I'm teaching about Christian understandings of grace, that's what I'm always thinking about. Hmm. Oh, that's really right. That, that, you know, yeah. that, that, that will and effort can only get you so far that every now and again, something else has to step in and fill in the gap. Mm-hmm. Um, and those brief moments in my life that I can probably name to you on one hand and have a few fingers, not quite up. Right. As, 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 as 
that would be another kind of place where I would. Art, when that's happening to you, do you know it's happening? Are you thinking I'm having a transcendent experience? Or is it only right. in retrospect that you realize, wow, I was in a different mental space? Yeah, it's only in retrospect. Huh. Because because it's one of these things like um, it's, it's flow states, right? As soon as you recognize it, it's done. Right. I, I think there was a, I can't remember the specifics of it, but you're mentioning Michael Jordan, but there was some game where he was just hitting a ridiculous number of three pointers, like a, just, just, just everything was going in. And then finally somebody said something to him or he just was aware of it and made aware of it. And that was the end of it. Yeah. I would just say that. For me, two, two, I guess two just exactly. I don't know if they're transcendent, ex, transcendent experiences, but as a Michigan Wolverine, like I can tell you when I watched them, when they made it to the uh, uh, college football championship playoff semifinal game and they lost. I mean, I, Sean, I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding you. Like I was just like emotionally just distraught, mm-hmm. like depre- depressed. I don't know that that's too strong of a word afterwards. And just as actual, if even physically manifested sort of letdown and going to those football games with a hundred thousand, at the time I went a hundred thousand, now 107,000 plus, you know, you're in there and it is being like at a mass service <laughs> in, a, in a way, but it's the way you identify, you know, it's part of being at Michigan and it was, you know, you were invested in, in, in that performing. And I remember just the, the, the euphoria when they would win and just, you know, the sense that, you know, this team could go out there and just the power and the speed and the art of it all, and that you were, you could be part of that. And, and, and experience it. It's hard to find other aspects in life that match that. Uh, uh, children you know, being born. Guess, mar- <laughs> children <laughs> being born, right. Yeah, yeah right. You're probably going to get angry emails. How can you say that? No, but, but children being born, marriage, right. I mean, you know, those kinds of things. On the other hand, I can tell you being a Detroit sports fan, losing almost becomes a transcendent experience. Right. <laughs> because in, in an odd way, you identify you know, with that idea of always falling short, of always being the underdog. Right. Cubs fans had that, right? Cubs yeah, yeah, exactly. Another really great example of that. Yes. Where yes. part of the identity of the community of Cubs fans is that they lose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and when they win, it's it undermines something that they were sharing. <laughs> exactly. There's so many interesting kind of religious parallels to um, having these kinds of communal experiences together, positive or negative. Um, but right, but the fact that we're all in it together and we all experience it together, that's what's key about those kinds of things. The other big story, I started off by talking about um, vaccines and how that's is such a prominent story right now. And there's another example like that specifically in football, which was in 2016 uh, when uh, uh, Colin Kaepernick, mm. he and some of his teammates started kneeling during the national anthem, right? He was kneeling specifically to protest racism and police brutality. And that went on up until like 2020. There's a host of reasons why that's interesting to me. First, why are we playing the national anthem before sports at all? What does this have to do with patriotism? Why is that ritual important to people? To your point, um, you know, how did this happen that we have the national anthem mm-hmm. sporting events? That started World War One-ish and really took out took off after World War II. But Howard Bryant has a really good book called The Heritage that I just cannot recommend enough. And he really locates the 
the backlash coming from post 9 11. Because hmm. if you can remember, you know, after 9 11, where was the place that our eyes fixated? It was on the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Right. They were right, America's that, team. Right. Um, and this was kind of like the place where people turned and sports very much started to kind of take on much more of a role in these sort of patriotic expressions, military, a lot of military things start to happen. Military shows up and, uh, you right. know, flying jets guards, over flyovers, yes. you know, all kinds of, uh, uh, advertisements, military, uh, that sort of a thing. And so all of these things, kind of all these streams get fused together where sports and, and patriotism and military and the wars and all of that stuff comes into meeting. And then you, boom, Colin Kaepernick starts kneeling, as you said, any other setting, you know, it was not that long before everybody was T-bowing, mm-hmm. which is <laughs> kneeling, right? <laughs> right. But where you do it and how you do it and who's doing it and, and for what reason uh, ends up becoming really important. Art, uh, Remillard, Robert, Sarabian, it was a blast to talk to you both. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Part of what I love about this podcast is the way in which, and, and part of what I'm trying to model is how the kinds of things we study academically can be connected to questions of entertainment and the relationship with sports to uh, community, identity, ritual, narrative, heroes, uh, destiny. I think all those themes are, are clearly relevant. And so thank you so much for the conversation. It was a blast to talk with you both. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you very much, Johnny. This podcast is brought to you by University College at University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. Our mission is to provide coordinated, intentional, and inclusive services and opportunities through our core values of connecting, supporting, collaborating, and engaging. Learn more about UW-Stevens Point and all our programs at uwsp.edu.